Good to see you here at our five o'clock teaching. As you regulars know, we are going through the book of James together. Um, five o'clock at the moment is expository preaching, which means we are going verse by verse through a whole letter. And that's important because God didn't give us a book formatted like a doctrine book. He gave us the Bible full of different formats, letters and gospels and biographies and poems. And so it's important in our Christian lives to always have a place where we're studying God's Word as it was given to us. Not just a verse here and a verse there, that's fine, but properly as He gave us. And so that's what we're doing today. But I want to encourage you, those of you that want to uh, really want to sit under teaching and study uh, seriously the Word of God, because we have two great courses that are coming up starting this week on Wednesday and Thursday. This is our Bible School Evening Certificate. Now, you, you can do all the courses that are there and get your certificate, or you can uh, go at your own pace and take the courses as they come up, as you're able to, and build up credits, or you can just see a course that you enjoy and do it for a credit or a no credit. Some people come and do the exams. Some people come and say, this is the course I want to go to. Uh, I don't really like exams, though. Is that okay if I just come and learn at my own pace? Of course it is. This is here to help you. And this Wednesday, we have a brand new written course based on Colin's brand new book, The God Who Heals. So this is go course is going to be taught by a senior minister starting this Wednesday. Christ the Healer, there's the new book. Uh, we only have the advanced copies for the students. Uh, the public launch will be uh, a while yet, but that's starting on Wednesday evening, where Colin will be taking us through the whole doctrine of healing and uh, healing in the atonement, also what to do when people don't get healed, the whole thing from start to finish, all the important aspects of a healing ministry. So we're encouraging people to come along for that, especially if you're in the ministry team or a cell leader. Uh, this is going to be a top course taught by our top minister here, senior minister. Uh, he won't be teaching this healing course every time it comes round. So uh, if you're going to do it or you're interested in ministering in healing and learning about healing, that's the one. Also on Thursday evening, we have an excellent course on starting this Thursday evening on New Testament survey. So important that we immerse ourselves in the whole of the New Testament, understand where different books fit in, where the emphasis are so that we can go deeper and deeper. It's great that today and, and, and at this time we can go deep into uh, the book of James, but it's also important to understand the New Testament as a whole. It's the New Testament. It's the new covenant, and it speaks with one voice. So the Thursday evenings are going to really, really allow us to be able to handle the New Testament and understand the New Testament as a whole. So you can get hold of um, more information is in the Revival Times and also there uh, at reception for registration. Seven o'clock this evening at our Holy Spirit ministry service, God laid on my heart a specific thing to minister, so it means that there's going to be people there that are going to be specifically and especially ministered to. And God asked me, or told me, or whatever way he put it, to speak on the topic of renewing your strength like the eagle. Renewing your strength like the eagle. 
It's amazing to look at how the eagle renews its strength because an eagle will come to a place in its life when it's worn out. Its feathers will no longer be working like it did when it was younger. It won't be able to fly as fast or as accurately. Its beak gets calcified and loses its strength in order to tear flesh. And its claws as well have got old and have lost their sharpness. So at this time, the eagle will fly high into a safe hidden place in the mountains. And there it will begin a process of picking off all its feathers, of bashing its beak against the rock until the, the beak is almost no longer there. Claws will begin to be taken off. And by the end of it, it's there naked, no claws, no beak. It's part of a renewal process. And then what happens slowly but surely, the feathers come back stronger than they were before. The talons come back more powerful than they were before, even in the youth. And the beak comes back sharper and stronger than ever before. The eagle's strength is renewed like in, uh, in its youth. And it comes down from that mountain stronger, fitter, more powerful than it ever was in its younger days. Now, this isn't just a message for older people or the over 40s, but God takes us in phases of renewal. And when God renews us, it's a wonderful event, but it's also quite a, how can I put it, vulnerable time. And sometimes Christians don't realize when they're going through a stage of renewal, they don't understand why they're so sensitive. They don't understand why things aren't going well. They don't understand, and they start blaming God, getting worried, and they don't realize that God has got a process of renewing them that will bring them into a place of greater strength than ever before. It's a prophetic thing. We're going to minister it tonight. We're going to pray for people about it. We're going to believe for an impartation. So that's just to give you a taste of that, should you wish to stay. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you, please, to turn to James. And don't forget that all of these lessons on James are on our media player, and welcome to all of those that are joining us by video right now on their homes in the internet. A lot of people watch this from home. Um, a lot of people also watch this later on in the week, so welcome to you. And you can always go on the media page down to where it says series and press series, and then you'll find all the series that we've done, our senior minister's series in the morning, five o'clock series in history, and you'll be able to see those series. You press on the series you want, and they're all lined up for you. So you can always catch up or see something at your leisure. But today, in the book of James, we find ourselves in James chapter 1 and verse 26. James chapter 1 and verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. 
For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown yourself having partiality? among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Did not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, last week we were speaking about the mirror of God's Word. We are remembering that the book of James is all about how to deal with trials. R.T. Kendall, when he writes in his excellent two-volume series on James, which I recommend to you all, he says that James is all about how to dignify the trial or the adverse circumstance that you face. And when we speak about trials and adverse circumstances. We're not just talking about the huge, big life trials that we face. We're talking about the little trials or tests or temptations that come every day. How many of you know tomorrow you will face some tests? They might not be huge, massive tests, but they'll be there in what happens and how you deal with what happens. And so James is saying that these tests and trials, the little ones, the tiny ones, and the big ones, are all there so that we can grow in our faith and maturity. And the biggest thing we need when we face a trial or a test is wisdom. Because we know when a test or trial comes, often the first thing we do is we don't know what to do. And sometimes we let our mouth out too quickly. That's why last week we saw that James said, be quick to hear, but you better be slow to speak. And you better be slow to anger, because do you know what? Anger never achieves the will of God. There is such a thing of righteous anger, but that's not anything that we suffer from. (laughs) Anger. If you're angry, don't speak. If you're annoyed, don't press send on the email. Wait till the morning. We spoke about that last week. And we don't blame God. We don't blame God for the trials and tests. Because although God is Lord of the trial and the test... Very often, the test or trial comes from the devil, or it comes from people. It's not God. He allows it for his use, but it's not God. We think of the wonderful example of Job that James will turn to in the last chapter, and we know that it was the devil that did those things to Job. Yes, God did give him permission, and he drew a line, and he said, that much you can do, but you cannot take his life. 
Isn't it good to know that whatever happens to you, God draws a line? There's nothing that won't come your way that you can't deal with, with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit and faith. Nothing. Remember, when, when you face a big trial or a big test, you think, I can't take it. God knows you can. He's drawn a sovereign line of how far the enemy or the test can go. And God knows the beginning of the trial, and he knows the end of it. You don't have to worry about that. What we need is to focus on our attitude when these things come, because that's what God is looking at. God is always at his fullness of glory. He is, he is the sun in the noon position, always shining down his love on us. Don't doubt God in the difficult times, because he's in there with you, and he will bring you out better, stronger than you've ever been before. It's exciting. And today, well, we're looking, what Paul is saying here is, well, last week we did look at the mirror of God's Word and how God's Word and God's mirror will show us what's going on in our heart if we're open and sensitive to it. I think I ended last week ranting on a little bit when I reflected on it, but um, I was talking about the blind spot, how you don't know... You don't know your own blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. And so if we're going to come to the Word of God, we've got to be really, really open. Because we might be surprised what God will show us. In fact, we should be. If it's a blind spot, we would say, what, me, Lord? Me? Yes, you. Blind spots, the mirror of God's Word. So we, we need to go into the mirror, look and see what's reflected. Be honest with God. The Word of God, Hebrews says in chapter 4, is two edged living and active. And what does that mean, living and active? Well, it goes on in Hebrews to say, revealing the thoughts of their heart and laying everything naked before the Lord of glory. So when you look into the mirror of God's Word, if you're sensitive, humble, and ready to hear, swift to hear, remember, slow to speak, slow to anger, you go to God's Word, then the living Word, if you allow it, will open and reveal things as they really are. And then moving on into this verse where we read today, he then goes on to speak about how to put this into practice. Not just to be a hearer of word, but a doer of the word. And what is a doer of the word like? Well, he says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious. Now, this word religious isn't a negative word. Sometimes in charismatic Pentecostal circles, we use the phrase, oh, you're so religious, or you've got a religious spirit, or or, I hate religion. And what we mean by that, I suppose, is some sort of cold format of Christianity that denies its power, some sort of outward pharisaical type of Christianity. But James isn't talking about that. You might want to change the word from if any... um, if if any among you thinks he is spiritual. Because that's what he's talking about, true spirituality. And then he says, right, well, the first thing is, and we're back to it again, if you think you're spiritual and don't bridle your tongue, but deceive your own heart, that one spirituality is useless. We are going to have a big section very soon on the use of the tongue. James will say the tongue is a fire sets on fire things. And James will look at the negative aspect of the tongue, but there is a positive aspect. Uh, There's two sides of the coin, but he's dealing 
with that. And he will talk about bridling the tongue later on as you bridle a horse, but he's already mentioning it. So when you want to guide a horse, you've got to put a bridle on it. A few years ago, I learned to ride a horse. I love riding horses. I haven't done it for a while, but it is, it is wonderful. But you learn to use the reins and the bridle. If there is no reins and no bridle, especially if it's a decent horse with a bit of fire in its belly, no reins or no bridle, I wouldn't be able to guide it at all. Even with some of them, when they're a bit grumpy, even having a bridle and the reins, it's hard enough. I remember I, wouldn't, I couldn't get one to move. I couldn't get one to... I had to get this seven-year-old girl that was teaching us to come on and show us how... God is a way of humbling you. But you have, you're turning it this way and the other... How about your tongue? Do you have a loose tongue? Does it say what it wants, how it wants, without thinking? Does your tongue speak first, and then afterwards your mind catch up? We've all done that at times. And James is saying, you call yourself spiritual, and you can't even control what comes out of your mouth. You're deceiving yourself, and your spirituality is useless. So we need to make sure that we're using the tongue to bless, to build up to do the things of God, that it's pure water, as James will say, that's coming out of our mouth, not bitterness and cursing and gossiping, because these things can destroy our spirituality. But then he moves on. Yeah, so the tongue, let me just say, so the tongue, James looks at the tongue almost like it's a separate entity in your life that needs to be tamed. Almost like you've got to treat your tongue as if it's Almost another little individual that needs to be dealt with. And isn't it true? Sometimes you say things you wish you hadn't said. It's amazing what can come out of your mouth. Because, of course, in the end, what's in your heart will come out of your mouth. In the end, in the end, if you hang around someone long enough, you'll hear what's in their heart. And so we need to deal with the heart, but we also need to bridle the tongue. We'll come back to this later. But then we find this amazing verse, verse 27, about what pure and undefiled religion or spirituality really is. And it's amazing what James says. He says two things. He says, real and undefiled spirituality before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So two things. Visiting orphans and widows, number one. And number two, keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Well, what does this mean? Well, widows and orphans, you have to get behind the spirit of what's been speaking here. It's not necessarily saying that the only people that we can look after are if you qualify as a widow or as an orphan. Now, the widows and the orphans, that's a theme right throughout Scripture, isn't it? Even in the Old Testament, it'll come back to the widows and the orphans. The widows and the orphans are not just widows and orphans, but they actually represent people that can't repay your kindness. They have nothing that they can give to you. They have no repayment, nothing that they can give back. And so widows and the orphans are representative of us ministering, and we'll see this later when we come to the royal law, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, to give and to love others that can't repay. Jesus says, what is it to you 
If you return love with love, don't even the non-Christians do that? What is it to you if you bless someone that you can bless, uh, that they will bless you back? How about giving to somebody, spending time with someone, or doing something for somebody that could never, or certainly in their present position, repay you? You're doing it unto, unto God. And James, I personally believe that James is the earliest book of the New Testament to be written. The more I'm studying it, the more I'm convinced of it. And I believe that James is writing at a time where none of the Gentiles have been saved yet. Well, the Gentile mission by Paul in Acts has not taken place. And that he is speaking to those scattered Jewish believers that at the time of the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen, straight after that, they all ran for cover and spread throughout Palestine. Actually, it helped the gospel spread. It's those that he's writing to. Nowhere in the book of James do we find any reference to non-Jewish believers. So it's a very, very early book. And I think James might have in his mind, and I'd like you to turn to it, Acts chapter 6. Because in Acts chapter 6, we find about widows, therefore orphans. And I just would like to look at that because we see in the passage in James... Two things for spirituality, don't we? Widows and orphans, but also keeping yourself spotless from the world. And so, in Acts chapter 6, we see this situation, and I'm going to read it to you and see how similar it is to James. James may well have this in his mind as a model. Acts 6, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, or Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So James says two things, to keep yourself from being defiled and unspotted from worldliness, but also to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Well, here in the passage of Acts chapter 6, we see the apostle dealing with exactly the same thing. There is a problem here. The question is, what are the apostles going to do? Are they going to give up prayer and the word themselves in order to deal with the needs of the widows? Or are they going to forsake the widows and stick to preaching the word and prayer? Well, we see, don't we, in Acts chapter 6, it wasn't an either or, was it? It was a both and. The apostles realized that both needed to be taken place. Now, in those days, there was no such thing as social security. God's people looked after God's people. They all had things in common. When there was a need, people would bring uh, finances for that need. It's very possible that a lot of these widows were no longer being looked after by the Jewish authorities because they were now Christians. And so they had no other course. They were widows, many from other nations, Jewish people, you see, they were Greeks, so they were Greek-speaking Jews that had come back from Jerusalem 
from all over the Greek empire and, and, and they were somehow being missed out. And the, and the apostle didn't say, well, who cares? We're too busy preaching the gospel and praying. They said, no, this is important. But they also said, as well as ministering to these people that have real needs, we can't ignore that preaching and prayer is also important. In fact, the apostles realized that the ministry of the word and prayer was actually more important. And they said, it's better for us as apostles to focus on the preaching and the prayer. But they didn't discard the other, did they? They said, but we also are going to take responsibility to find people that will meet the needs of people. But the priority was preaching and prayer for the apostles. This is important when we look at James because often when people have looked at the passage that we're in, verse 27, they have chosen one or other of the two things that James said was true spirituality. Often people call disparagingly or not, depending on what side you're on of the, of the debate. Have you ever heard of the term social gospel? The social gospel, quote, social gospel, unquote, became very popular in the last century and focused more on social needs than spiritual needs. In fact, some very strong movements that were born in evangelism and soul winning by the mid-1900s, they had become more feeding people and sheltering people, and very little of the gospel was preached at all. And people call that the social gospel. A lot of liberal Christians who weren't really worried about being born again, and if there is a heaven believed that everybody would get there, thought the main task was to look after people's social needs. Believed that the church was there to meet the physical needs of people, the social needs of people. Indeed, the government at many times encouraged those types of churches. They weren't too interested in the churches preaching, you must be born again. In fact, the government, in its, all its various forms, has often told churches, yeah, we don't mind you looking after that. We don't mind you helping in this social thing, but we don't want any of your preaching. The social gospel. And then there was another reaction to that. You can imagine what the opposite side was that says, this is ridiculous. People must be born again. And their focus was more on keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Their focus was on prayer and the word and getting people born again. But we see here in James, as we also saw in Acts, that both things are important. And we have to look into our own hearts because I've noticed as I've met people over the years that you will have a natural tendency, depending on your personality, to one side or the other. So I've met people, even in our own fellowship over the years, that have a special burden for social needs, which is fine. But they will often take that burden, which is a special burden, especially for them, you know, and they will say, well, everybody else should have the same. And if you're not going out feeding the homeless on the streets or if you're not doing some sort of social thing, they basically doubt that you're even saved. Well, that's a little bit over the top, but I've met people that are there on that side. And then I've met people on the other side that aren't really bothered about what happens to people and the needs that they face. They just want to get another soul saved. What happens after that? Well, who cares? Just get them saved. 
And so there will be people with different calling and special callings. There will be people that God will say, now for you, I really want you to focus on one of these more than the others. After all, the apostles did, didn't they? They focused, but they didn't discard the other. They made sure that the other was actually involved. So we see here, now like I said, the widows and orphans reflect those that can't repay you. Those that you minister to, that you don't get back from. And we know this because it goes on. Remember, chapters and verses weren't in the original Bible. You know that? When James wrote this letter, he didn't put James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, chapter 2, verse 2. Those were put in hundreds of years later by the church to help us read it. And I'm very glad that they did. What this means is, whenever you go from one chapter to another, in a letter or the Bible... Don't necessarily think that the author is totally changing subject. Sometimes he's not changing at all. It's simply to allow us to have references. And some people get mixed up because they'll read chapter 1 and then they'll go to chapter 2 on another day as if it's starting a whole new chapter like or a whole new topic. Well, it isn't. Because in verse chapter 2, verse 1, he is continue. You see, James is concerned that our faith is practical. Spiritual, yes, we've seen that, but also practical, that it actually is put to work in whatever situation we find ourselves in, but also in whatever situation we find others in as well. Uh, The passage that we'll go into after the one I read today will talk about what use is your faith if someone comes to you with no clothes and you say, be dressed. Or someone comes to you hungry and you say, in the name of Jesus, be filled. There you are. Are you filled? He'll say, that faith can't save a man from nakedness. That faith can't save a man from hunger. That, you, you say you've got faith. I'm going to put my faith to work. I'm going to believe God to meet my needs. I'm going to believe God to get through my test. But I'm also going to believe God for others. Because we're not just told to love ourselves in the love of the Lord. We're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. So our faith and prayer life is not just for us. It's for others. And especially for those that we can't get back from. In other words, because I'll tell you what we're going to see now is that normally, without thinking, we are attracted to be around people that we can get something out of. Consciously or even unconsciously, we, the friends or the people that we often spend time with, usually there's a motivation. I like being around that person because that person gives me friendship, fellowship, whatever, or I like that person because I can get something out of that relationship. I like their status, I like their wealth, I like their humor, and so I am going alongside these people because I get a lot out of being with them. What about, James says, the people that can't give you anything, can't give you back, can't give you back a thing? And this is what he goes on to say, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with favoritism. That's what partiality means. Now, it's not by accident that he says, don't hold the faith of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Now, why would he use that phrase, the faith of Jesus? Because he's saying Jesus is our model. And if you look at Jesus, he had a bias to the poor. Some people got really annoyed, actually, with me. Not from here, but when I was teaching this. Well, maybe not annoyed, but they couldn't understand it. When I said that the gospel was designed for the poor, I got a reaction. Well, what about the rich people? What about them? The gospel was designed for the poor. Oh, well, that poor just means poor in spirit. No, it doesn't. Of course, you can be poor in spirit and open to God. But the word poor means poor. It means those that are forgotten, those that can't give you back, those that society's not interested in, those that aren't rich, those that aren't famous, those that don't have. It's the have-nots, the cast-outs. And Jesus said the gospel is designed for them. Not many of us that were chosen were mighty. Not many of us rich. Not many of us famous. Not many of us with political power. But God has chosen the despised things of this world to confound the great. If you don't think much of yourself, you're a candidate for turning the world around. But if you think a lot of yourself, in other words, if you're rich, you better get your face in the dust, my friend. And just thank God you're in the kingdom because it wasn't designed for you. Not many of you are in it. So how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? How hard? That's not just to get saved, but to operate the kingdom principles. And so he says, look, the Lord of glory. In other words, God's got the glory. We don't have to go to people with the money. God's got the money. We don't have to go to people with the fame. God's got the fame. We don't have to go to people with the power. God's got the power. We don't have to go to people with the authority or political authority. We don't have to uh, gravitate to them. Why? God's got all those things. God's got all the glory that we need. So therefore, when a man comes into your assembly, now that assembly could be two things. He could be talking about the church meetings which were usually in the homes at that time, and they'd have big gatherings, teaching seminars and conferences in the temple courts, but mainly house to house. And it could be that home meetings that Paul, that James is talking about, or some people believe it's talking literally about courts, religious courts, and that people with, which are rich are being preferred in the courts to poor. I think it's talking, to be honest, about the church meetings in homes, but... Uh, either works. For if someone should come into your assembly, a man with gold rings in fine apparel. Now, this is quite interesting. When you look into the Greek, it's actually even more powerful. It's not gold rings, it's gold fingers. That's the phrase. If a person comes in with gold fingers, it's like a James Bond film, isn't it? If someone comes in with gold fingers, not just rings, this person's got so much bling They just take their hands out of the pocket and everyone gets dazzled, gold fingers. And then the other phrase that is used is not fine apparel, but shining clothes. Shining clothes and gold fingers. Sounds like an American preacher off God TV, doesn't it? Amen. Shining clothes and gold fingers. And it says that if you receive someone, if one comes into your assembly, and it says, verse 3, and you pay attention to the one wearing shiny clothes. The word attention is, a, is from a Hebrew word or, a, or an Aramaic word, and it means this, literally. 
if you receive someone according to their face. So in other words, if you receive someone according to their face. In other words, if you receive someone according to their external appearance and you show partiality or favoritism. So here is the person coming in with the riches and then a poor man comes in. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. Now, what is he talking about? He's saying, this, this isn't about giving honor where honor is due, by the way. You know, if an MP or somebody or a local dignitary wanted to come and visit Kensington Temple at a service, uh, we wouldn't say, well, you know, see you there. There's a lower hall if you can't get in. We would reserve them a seat. Why? Because we're showing where honor where's honor's due. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's very different to courting someone's favoritism for your own gain, all right? So, again, you've got to find out what is James talking about. He's not talking about giving honor where honor is due, but he's talking about giving honor where you want something out of it. In other words, have you not shown favoritism and judged with evil thoughts? What this means and what this is talking about is trying to get certain individuals to meet your needs that you should trust God with. Remember, we're talking about trials and tests. Uh, still, we haven't moved from that. It's one theme that we've gone through over the weeks. So, and, and I've seen this in Christendom, and if you've been around, you will have, that people at whatever level of ministry, including leaders of churches, right down to new believers, often they will look at somebody and think, that person can help me. That person can help me. One of the dangers of being rich and known in a church is that people have a habit of coming to you and asking for money. There's many ways and subtleties of doing it, but going to them and asking for money or dropping holy hints. And so a church leader finds out that there are millionaires in the church, and immediately the leader's mind is ticking. I could do with a few of those millions. And so begins to treat that person, not as a person, but as a means to meeting their needs. This is the problem. The rich man is no better or worse than the poor man. We're all equal under God. God has designed it for those that are poor, but all men are equal. But what this person is doing is showing favoritism, hoping for gain. We've just read about the widows and orphans, people that can't pay you back. And now we've got someone with golden fingers and shiny clothes that could meet all your building needs, all your tuition needs in one check. Now there's a temptation. You hear what I'm saying? Earlier on we spoke about every trial carries with it a temptation. And the, tri and the temptation that comes with every trial, the temptation is always don't do it God's way. Every trial, no matter how tiny it is or test, brings with it a temptation, don't do it God's way, trust in man, manipulate it. And so the idea is here's this rich person and everybody's wanting to get something from him. There's the widows and orphans and nobody's ever thinking about them. And I've seen it over the years in different scenarios in places. Sometimes it's quite sickening actually. I've been in ministerial fraternities and meetings where a politician 
is the guest of honor. Nothing wrong with that. And to see the fawning and sickening, kowtowing of ministers trying to position themselves to get close to that politician. They're willing to throw out all signs of biblical integrity. They just want to be seen and known next to that rich person, seen and known next to that politician. I tell you what, you bring a famous politician with great power or a very rich businessman into a group of backslidden pastors and it's like a feeding frenzy. A feeding for everybody positioning, everybody. And then if anybody gets close, showing them off. Why? Because they see in that individual the means to meeting their needs. And God is like, that's not the way. That's not, that doesn't mean that you can't be friends with politicians. But you're not friends with politicians for what you can get out of it. You, you, you're friends with politicians because God has put you in that place to be an influence. But you, but they will, you are no more looking to them to meet your needs than you are a widow or orphan type figure. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because along comes in the poor man in filthy clothes who can't give you anything. You wouldn't want his clothes if he could give it to you. If he said, I've got my shirt off my back, he'd say, no, thank you. So you've got gold fingers and shiny clothes who could refurbish your house, give you a new car, and then you've got somebody who's got nothing to give you. How do you treat them? How do you treat them? In the congregation, how do you treat people that come up to you immediately? I've seen, we've had famous people come to KT. I remember a boy band came to uh, see Colin preach at, um, when we had our tab- tabernacle venue. I won't name the band, but a very famous boy band. And so it was in the middle of the service. I can't remember if we were worshipping or Colin was preaching. It was quite a while ago. But all of a sudden, there was this distraction at the back of the hall. And people were mumbling and turning their heads and getting out of their seats and going over. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? What's going? Well, the rumor had got round that a boy band, a very famous boy band, or two or three members of them, had just come through the doors. I'm telling you what, I wish we'd hired security that night. People didn't even wait till the end of the message they were around there. And not just people, but leaders. Not me, I didn't like the boy band. <laughs> if it had been a rock band, I might have been... No, anyway. Not, but Lee, everybody trying to... Oh, oh, oh. You should have seen it, Daniel. It was like a feeding frenzy. People trying to get in there, tr- trying to get there. And, I, and, I, and at the end of it, I thought, how awful. How shameful. You know, they came to church and they got mobbed by Christians in a worse way than non-Christians would. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that bad? They come into church and they can't even worship God. And neither can the people because all of a sudden they're seeing somebody that they're attracted to that they can get something from, even if it's just a photo. You hear what I'm saying? It's inappropriate. What about us when we meet people? Not just in church, but when we meet people. Do we dignify those that come and speak to us that can't give us anything as much as those that we know can? And we know it's a temptation, so it's not like we're talking about something that doesn't exist. In your life, there will be people that you will meet and you think, wow, And you'll think, I can get so much from this person. Not necessarily in a nasty way, but it's just this person is this, that, and the other. They can meet my needs, or they got status, or this, that, or they, or, you know, this is a very important person to me in the future. Fine. 
Treat them with respect. Well, what about somebody that comes? Can't give you anything. Got nothing you need. Nothing you need to get on. There's no need to pay them attention. No need to think about their needs or to help them. There's no need at all for you. But there's a person you can get much from. God is displeased. That doesn't mean that we throw out and kick out the rich man or don't give honor where honor's due. But honor where honor's due is a godly thing. Honor in order to get is not a godly thing. In fact, it's everything that James has been speaking against about trusting God for our needs. Not, not getting excited Everybody comes, every time you see someone come to church with a Rolex watch. And he says, look, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, verse 5, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Now, what does this mean? Again, it's not saying that rich people are evil, but what it's saying is this, that God is on the side of the poor, not because they're poor, but because they are more responsive to him and the kingdom. You say, what do you mean? Well, we mentioned this a few uh, times back. We said, a poor person had better pray or they won't eat. Full stop. A poor person better believe God for healing because they can't get a place at the local NHS doctor. So they have to go to God in faith. Whereas a rich man doesn't even need to bless the food because there's plenty more where that came from. A rich man doesn't need to worry to begin with about health. Why? Because they can afford the best doctors in the world. A rich person doesn't need to trust God. He's already got everything that he needs. And that's a very dangerous place to be. But a poor person, and you can, you can have greedy poor people, but a poor person, what James is saying, is in a place where they, they need the Lord. And Jesus went primarily, of course, he went to rich people like Zacchaeus, but primarily he, meant, he went to people that had nothing and were hungry for him, and he was enough for them. And so James is saying, look, the people that you should take your cue from are the hungry and needy and the reliant on the Lord. And God doesn't want us to stay poor. Poverty is not a good thing. That's why Jesus came to the poor, because they were in a bad thing. But the thing about being poor is that you're often more readily capable of receiving Jesus, because you don't have all the wealth in the way. You hear what I'm saying? In fact, God wants to take us out of poverty, but there's a danger as we come out of poverty that we will rely less on the Lord. So I'm not saying God loves poverty. He doesn't. He hates poverty. It's a curse. Jesus became poor on the cross that we might become rich. He hates poverty, but he loves the poor. Can you hear the difference? Because of the attitude compared. And remember, when we're looking at the poor in James, we're always comparing the poor with the rich. It's a comparison. So you have to remember, in comparison to the rich, the poor are more open to the Lord. So it's not something that is legalistic, God hates the rich and God loves the poor. No, it's talking about tendencies, the tendencies of the rich to trust in their riches and not the Lord, and the tendencies of the poor having nothing to put their trust in God. They've got nothing but their faith, therefore they have to be rich in it. 
And verse 8 brings this on. If you really fulfill the royal law, now here's a wonderful thing, the royal law, the law of all laws. You know, in the Bible, we have a new covenant and the new law, and uh, we're no longer under the old law, but we're under a new law, and the new law is love. Love one another as I have loved you, and love your neighbor as yourself, and carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and so bear Sorry, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when we talk about this, I do a lot of this in my book on no more law in, that I wrote on Galatians. And the royal law, Galatians 5.14, Galatians 5.14, the whole law is summed up in the one word, in the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Galatians 5.14. So what James is talking about, even before Paul was ministering to the Gentiles, James had the gospel here. Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The uh, golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. This is the principle that he is talking about. And then he says, but if you show partiality or favoritism, you commit sin. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, you don't want to go under the old law, the Mosaic law, because the law of Moses never blessed you, can't bless you. The only thing the law of Moses can do is show you that you're a sinner and reveal your sin and the judgment that you need. The only thing the law can do is reveal sin or restrain sin externally like a Pharisee without touching the heart and make you know your need of Christ. The law of Moses can't do a thing for you except show you your need to be free. In fact, the law of Moses puts you in prison, but the law of Christ sets you free. The greatest freedom in life is twofold, and as I finish, I'll come back to where we started, is twofold. Pure and undefiled spirituality. The greatest freedom is this. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. To be free from sin in all its form. And secondly, to visit orphans and widows. In other words, including orphans and widows, of course. In other words, to love your neighbor as yourself for no other reason. Not for the reason that they can give back to you, but because God has put you in that position with those people to love them, to do that. And verse 12 finally says, So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What a powerful passage this is, a sobering passage of true spirituality. The word must be preached and ministered in our lives. The apostles knew that. Prayer is essential it is the breath of spiritual life, cleansing from this world and renewal of the mind from the pollution of this world. These are the things that are important, but then also ministering to people, not because of what we can get out of them, but because God asks us to do it for him. Jesus is our source. That's why we're free to treat our neighbor properly. God bless you.